this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hi, my name is Nicholas O. I am an integrated cardiothoracic surgery resident at the Cleveland Clinic. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Michael Tong. Dr. Tong is a staff cardiac surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic and is the director of cardiac transplantation and mechanical circulatory support. He also specializes in the surgical management of CTEF and leads our CTEF program. Dr. Tong, thank you for your time. Thank you, Nick. Pleasure to be here. So let's begin with the case. A 65-year-old male comes to your clinic for evaluation and treatment for possible chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, or CTEF. He has a past medical history significant for hypertension, seizures, a DVT, and a pulmonary embolism diagnosed three years ago. Over the last 12 months, he has been increasingly short of breath and is unable to do the same level of activities as he did in the past without exertional, exertional dyspnea. He was initially diagnosed with interstitial lung disease and was placed on steroids with no improvement. He then had a VQ scan which showed a VQ mismatch. He currently is on anticoagulation over the last three months. What do you think is relevant in his past medical history and how would you initially screen this patient on whether he has CTEF? Thanks, Nick. Yeah, this, uh, this patient represents pretty typically of, um, of the type of patients that we see. Um, often these patients will have a history of DVTs or PEs, but not always. Um, approximately a third of the patients that we see with CTEF never had anything to suggest that they had a, a PE in the past. Um, in this case, he had a PE years ago. He was initially anticoagulated for a period of time. They did a, a workup for hypercoagulability, which came back negative. Um, you always want to be thinking about cancers in these type of patients. Um, and um, and alike, and um, afterwards he stopped anticoagulation, and um, and uh, recently he became short of breath again. And quite often with these patients, they're misdiagnosed. CTEF is a, is not a condition that you find uh, very easily by accident. It's not like an aneurysm where you're doing a CT to look for something. And you happen to stumble upon an aneurysm. With CTEF, you have to go look for it, and um, and it's not going to be staring at you if you're not looking for specifically. So um, for somebody like him uh, who's been short of breath after a previous PE, you always have to think of CTEF as a possible diagnosis, especially if they've been treated for something else and it hasn't worked. They've been treated for, often you hear they're treated for asthma, they're treated for COPD, they're treated for ILD, pneumonia, and uh, the treatment doesn't seem to be worked yet. They're still symptomatic. You gotta think of CTEF in these patients. So um, you asked about uh, a screening test. The, the, probably the best screening test for these patients is a VQ scan. And on a VQ, you really want to look for evidence of a VQ mismatch. And um, unfortunately with COVID, a lot of centers, they're not doing um, the ventilation component of VQ mismatch. So you really only have the, the perfusion component. Um, however, you can look at your CT and just uh, look at the um, parenchyma itself for evidence of any um, any uh, perfusion um, defects. So you want to look to see if there's evidence of atelectasis, any infarts, 
um, you know, if they've had a previous lobectomy, for example. Um, so you want to uh, rule out any anatomical reasons of uh, that could potentially explain or potentially um, lead to a ventilation uh, defect in the areas that are hypoperfused. But if the if the um, parenchyma of the lung looks relatively normal, and you have a perfusion defect, then you got to suspect that this patient has CTEF. Great. So um, kind of going back on uh, on the test that he got, so he did get an echogram, echocardiogram, and it showed normal LV systolic function, no wall motion abnormality. The RV was enlarged with mild dysfunction. Tapsy was measured at 1.8 centimeters. PA systolic pressure was about 97 uh, millimeters of mercury, and he had 2 plus TR. The VQ scan did show a VQ mismatch. He had uh, perfusion defects in the lateral, anteromedial, posterior basal segments of the left lower lobe, apical segment of the right upper lobe, and superior and anterior basal segments of the right lower lobe with preserved ventilation in both lungs. So given these findings, how do you go about confirming and assessing the extent of the disease? Yeah, that's... um... So in addition to the VQ, uh, you mentioned he had an echo. And on the echo, you're not necessarily going to see CTEF per se, but you're going to see consequences of CTEF, and that is predominantly right heart failure. Um, you're going to see a dilated RV. You can see RVSP. Um, however, it's not always accurate. Um, but if you certainly, if you have an RVSP that's elevated, it gives you clues that this patient may have pulmonary hypertension. You may see some TR. And um, all these findings on the echo are pretty typical of what you ex- should see with CTEF. Now, once you've done the screening test with the echo and the VQ, now you've got to go and confirm the diagnosis. And that's with a CT with a specific PE protocol. Um, it's got to have, um, it's gotta have uh, thin cuts so that you can uh, have a, a very good visualization of all the segments of the lungs. And, um, and usually a CTPE will give you the diagnosis. Having said that, there are situations where CTs are not, um, where the the resolution of the CT will fail, and that's when you have disease that's limited to the small vessels. In those cases, CT, you may not see the clots in the lobar arteries or in the left and the right main. Um, and if you have disease that are in the segmental and the subsegmental, you may miss it on the CT. And in those cases, then you want to do a pulmonary angiogram. With the pulmonary angiogram, um, you don't want to just do AP because a lot of those vessels are going to overlap. You want to do a LAO and an RAO, and um, and um, you need to have a, um, a skilled uh, radiologist who um, will get the will, will get the, the pigtail right into the um, vessels and, and give you good um, injection for you to see those vessels in high resolution. What we often, what we always say here is, we never, in a patient who we suspect has CT, we never turn them down with just the CT alone. Um, if the CT is not conclusive, we'll always perform pulmonary angiogram before we completely rule that out um, prior to um, declining somebody for surgery. Okay, so uh, the CT in our case showed that he did have a dilated. Uh, PA as well as uh, L and uh, left and right PA, evidence of chronic PE in the segmental and subsegmental arteries of the left lower lobe, uh, as well as the anterior and posterior arteries of the right lower lobe. Yeah, perfect. So this CT um, in this case, 
um, was uh, was diagnostic and showed us exactly what we need to, uh, to know. Um, what we're looking for is exactly where the disease is. We want to know if it's in, uh, if it's present in in uh, the the main vessels in the low bars uh, or in the segmentals or subsegmentals, um, or if it's a microvascular disease. So in this case, um, this is uh, completely diagnostic. We feel confident with the diagnosis. And um, during that, during the um, the CT, following CT, once you have the diagnosis, we always want to also do a right heart cath so we can measure the hemodynamics. Okay, so the right heart cath showed that the PA pressure was uh, systolic 95 over 35. Um, the mean was 52. The wedge pressure was 11 and the uh, PVR was about 7.5 woods uh, units, and the index was about 2.5. So given these findings, um, how do you assess the risk of the procedure and whether the patient will benefit from the operation? Yeah. So um, in, when we evaluate these patients for surgery, we are uh, we're making these um, decisions with the team. Um, We've shown here that, um, you know, at Cleveland Clinic, we've had a CTEF team since 2011. And uh, this team consists of not only the surgeon, but we also have a dedicated pulmonologist who has interest in this disease. We have, uh, we have a uh, interventional radiologist, we have a vascular medicine specialist, and we have a dedicated nurse. And we meet every week to discuss all these referrals and, um, and uh, the management for these patients. I think having the right diagnosis is absolutely critical. What we've learned is um, prior, to, prior to 2011, prior to when we had the team, there were some patients that were brought to the operating room with a diagnosis of CTEF and it turned out to be a wrong diagnosis. So um, in those cases, the, the outcomes weren't so good. You gotta be sure that you have the right diagnosis. There are other conditions that can mimic CTEF, such as idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, such as fibrosing mediastinitis, sarcoid, where you can have lymph nodes that are compressing the vessels that can look like clots. And if you have the wrong diagnosis, you can very easily get in trouble. Once you feel that you have the right diagnosis, the two questions we always want to answer is number one, does this patient have surgically accessible disease? And whether or not this patient is a surgical candidate. Now, what I mean by surgically accessible disease is that is this disease proximal enough that we feel that we can get into a plane? As you go into the pulmonary arteries, obviously you start with the, the left and the right and you go down into the low bars and then you go into into the segmentals. There are some patients where the disease is only in the distal segmentals or even smaller than that. And in those patients, you just can't get to the disease. You can't, your instruments are not small enough to be able to get down there. Um, so we need patients who have diseases, at least in the low bar arteries and segmentals. And occasionally we have patients who have disease that in a subsegmental that we can get to. Um, you wanna know that this patient has disease, that have enough disease that explains why their PVR is elevated. Um, if you see very little disease, um, but patient still has a high PVR, you want to think, is there something else that's going on here? Does this patient have idiopathic pulmonary hypertension? Um, is CTEF really the, the primary problem here? You can certainly have patients who have another diagnosis, but who has an incidental PE that's small, that doesn't explain their whole clinical picture. 
and um, and you, you want to make sure that you are not um, fooled by those type of patients. Um, so once you feel that this patient has anatomically accessible disease, the next question is, is this patient a surgical candidate? What are their medical comorbidities? How high is their, what is their right ventricular function like? Uh, what are their other medical comorbidities like? Is there, whether it's their hepatic function, renal function? I can tell you in general, there are very few people that are truly, who are true um, contraindication contraindicated for surgery. You know, we a lot often you will find that some of these patients are quite obese. We've operated on patients who have a BMI of 50 for this uh, operation and still got good outcomes. Um, age used to be a contraindication, um, but we've um, just like all fields of cardiac surgery, we're getting better at operating on older, older patients. We'll operate on patients in their 80s. We'll do patients who have had previous surgeries before. Um, when it comes to right heart function, that is, um, that is something that I pay quite a bit of attention to. Um, it's a combination of right heart function or right heart failure with the degree of PVR that I look at in a combination. So if you have somebody who has a high PVR, let's say their PVR is 10, and their RV is really bad, but who has accessible disease, who you feel that you can get out um, the all the disease and get a good result that's the type of patient who you you can probably get a good result from and the rv should be able to handle it and with the decrease in afterload if you have a patient who has a very high pvr but whose surgical accessibility is not all that good i.e that the disease is very distal or the disease is really not all that extensive that's the type of patient that you should really worry about because on that patient, if they have a PVR of 10, their RV is already bad, you go in and you're not successful in cleaning out much disease, their PVR is not going to change and that's the patient that you're going to get in trouble afterwards. So often, um, so those are the two questions that I want to answer. Is this surgically accessible disease? And is this patient a medical, uh, is this patient medically um, fit enough for surgery? Great. Um, so, in this case, the uh, patient uh, was found to be a good uh, surgical candidate and was found to have accessible disease. So the patient undergoes a bilateral pulmonary thromboendarterectomy. Could you please describe the sequence of your operation and how to perform the endarterectomy and any pitfalls that you'd like to share with the residents? Yeah. So um, the surgery, these are uh, in my hands always done through a median sternotomy. There are, are there are some places that in some cases will do these through thoracotomies, but I feel get the best control from a median sternotomy. We'll cannulate uh, the ascending aorta. We'll cannulate both the uh, SVC and the IVC. For the SVC, I cannulate quite high on the SVC, um, just so that the cannula is not in the way when we are um, exposing the right pulmonary artery. And then we will cool the patient and uh, go into surgatory arrest. Typically, I don't arrest the heart. Um, when the patient is cold, they will, um, the, their heart will, will usually stop when we enter circuitory arrest, which is uh, not that big of a deal. Um, I pay quite a bit of attention to a neuroprotection. For these patients, we have a protocol based on, uh, based on the work done in San Diego. Um, these patients are given a solid medrol. We give phosphonatoin, mannitol, and propofol. 
um, will have a BIS monitor. We want their BIS to be at zero prior to circle rest. If they're not at zero, we'll give a bolus of propofol to get it down to zero. And we also have the nears on the brain. Um, typically what you'll see is that your starting nears will be around 70% or so. As you um, uh, get colder, the nears will, will rise a little bit to, to around 75, 80. Not always, but sometimes it will. And as you're circle rested, you will see an initial um, a fairly rapid drop in the nears um, by about 10 to 15 points over five to 10 minutes. And then that drop will start to taper off. Um, typically, I start from the left side. I'll have a heart net so that the heart will be pulled to the right side. I'll open the left pulmonary artery, um, put um, pledgeted stitches in the pulmonary artery to open it up and expose it. Um, I, I also put in a um, left atrial vent in to uh, clear the blood and also a PA vent as well. And um, once I have the exposure, um, after um, I'm cold, and uh, it typically takes about 30 minutes to cool, I'll go into circuitry arrest. And once I'm in circuit arrest, what I wanna do is uh, I wanna look for the plane between the clot and the intima. Typically the intima will have a smooth, pearly appearance that's slightly yellow, whereas the clot will often have a whitish more of a lumpy, bumpy type of appearance. Based on my preoperative imaging, I'll have a good idea of what level I should expect to see the disease. Once I see the, see the clot, what I wanna do is I wanna get into a plane. And um, as I, the way I get into a plane is you wanna grab the clot and we have a special instrument. It's a, essentially a, a, um, a sucker dissector. It's, um, it's, a, a, it's a round um, tip um, that has holes that you attach to a suction and, um, and the tip is probably about three to four millimeters wide and that's your dissecting instruments and that'll help you get into the plane. Um, the, key, the key to a successful endarterectomy is really to get into that plane. If you are too shallow, um, i.e. you're not deep enough into the, into the, um, the clot and you don't have all the clot, um, you're not going to get a good extraction versus if you're too deep and you get into the media of the vessel, you can have a vascular injury. So you want to be right in that plane between the clot and, um, and the, the intima of the vessel. So once you're in that plane, you want to, you want to free up the clot circumferentially 360 degrees, and then you can grab the clot and then use your sucker dissector. You continue to dissect down more and more distally until you get to the, the branches. And once you're in the branches, um, you should be able to uh, continue to dissect down into the, into the segment, segmental branches until your instruments can no longer go any further because they're just not small enough. Small enough. At that point, you wanna have a good grab at, uh, at the clot and you wanna pull it out. And, and it's, you gotta apply some gentle traction um, but you can't be too forceful because you want to get all the clot out and all the distal tails. If the clot breaks and you leave behind uh, clots, you're not going to get a, a good outcome. So typically the, the specimen that you're going to get out looks like, a, looks like an octopus. You're going to have a main body and you're going to have all these distal tails. And that's what you want to see is that you have all the tails. Typically it'll take you about 20 minutes on each side. So. It'll take me 20 minutes on the on the left side. Then I reperfuse the patient, and um, as I'm reperfusing, I'm closing the left pulmonary artery. Then I go into the right side. Now, when we have the nears in place, if the nears are starting to drop, 
and um, and it's dropping below 40% or dropping below below 20 points from baseline, then uh, what I do is I'll reperfuse the patients for a few minutes. And um, you'll see that within three to four minutes of systemic reperfusion, your nears will go right back up to baseline. Um, so that's, that's essentially um, how we prepare these patients and protect their brains. It's all about getting into the right plane and getting all the, all the disease out and getting the distal tails. And that's the key to having a good outcome. Great, those are some excellent points. Um, so, uh, postoperatively, what are some of the po- complications that you're concerned about and how do you manage these? Yeah, so um, some of the complications you can anticipate, some of them you cannot. Um, as you are dissecting into those vessels, um, you, wanna be, you wanna be confident that you've extracted all of the disease. Um, and when you're coming off pump, what you'll typically see is that the PA pressures often may not be any different immediately after surgery. When you're coming off, you may find that the PA pressures may be just as high as they were um, prior to surgery. And often it'll take about 24 to 48 hours for you to see a drop in the PA pressures. So, uh, so during this time, um, the patients still have pulmonary hypertension, so their right ventricle can still be under quite a bit of stress. And, um, and the, the right ventricle can, uh, especially if somebody who have a severe RV, they can, um, they can suffer. And, um, and the tendency is to um, start them on inotropic support um, because this is what we're trained to do as cardiac surgeons. If you have a ventricle either left or right that's weak, you wanna put them on inotropic support. The pitfall when it comes to these cases is you really don't wanna hyperperfuse the lungs. They're almost like lung transplant patients. You want these patients to come off pump just in slight, uh, slightly lower cardiac index. I'll tolerate a cardiac index about 1.8 to 2 for these patients. If their index is above that, you're good. But if they're around 1.8 to 2, I'll tell the anesthesiologist, uh, don't start any inotropes. Let's just see how this patient does. And typically, as the PVR drops over the next 24, 48 hours, the heart will uh, will gradually get better and the index will improve on its own. But you don't want to artificially drive this patient's cardiac output too high because you're driving pulmonary hypertension and that can increase your risk of hemorrhage. Sometimes despite your best efforts, uh, uh, sometimes the intima gets a little denuded. You have vessels that are in the pulmonary artery that are in the segmental, uh, um, in the distal segments that are very, very fragile. And, um, and, um, and uh, these vessels can certainly rupture on you if uh, your PA pressures are too high. So um, what, we t- uh, what we commonly see is that um, is that these patients will have residual pulmonary hypertension initially that will usually get resolved. Um, what you often may also see is that they may have what's called a steel phenomenon. So for example, if pre-op, most of the blood is going to the upper lobes and the lower lobes are occluded, once you've opened the lower lobes, they now may be perfused, but those areas of the lungs may not be ready for gas exchange yet but you're taking blood away from the upper lobe where most of the gas exchange was taking place before. And these patients can have uh, quite profound desaturations in this setting. Um, and that's what we, what we call steel because the blood is being stolen from the, uh, from the areas that were normally perfused. Sometimes the desaturation can be quite profound. Um, 
of course, you want to rule out a pulmonary hemorrhage um, that could be a potential cause. The, the anesthesiologist should be able to tell you if there's any blood from, from the ET tube. Um, and, uh, and usually that's quite rare. Um, and as long as there's no evidence of hemorrhage, um, you can uh, usually write it out and uh, use um, inhale flow land to, um, to, to try to improve your uh, gas exchange. And in severe cases, you may need VV ECMO. And typically after a few days, VV ECMO, um, once, the, once the areas that are now perfused are ready for gas exchange, you should be able to separate these patients off. Um, so that's, uh, that's another thing that we may uh, often see. Um, if you truly have a vascular injury and you have hemorrhage coming from, coming from the airways, that is a, quite a, a bad complication. Luckily, we, we um, hardly ever see it, but once you do see that and you have blood coming from uh, the airways, you wanna put a bronchial blocker in, um, you wanna reverse the anticoagulation, of course, and then those are the patients you may wanna put on VA ECMO to divert the blood away from the lung to give the, uh, give the vessels a chance to heal. So those are some of the complications that we see. Um, and um, luckily, we don't see them all that often. Most of these surgeries are quite well tolerated. In the post-operative ICU, the first 24 hours are quite critical. Um, I'll, I'll typically um, diurese these patients quite aggressively. Um, I'll, uh, you know, we've done a lot of training with our anesthesia colleagues and our, and our ICU colleagues as well to make sure that they don't drive the cardiac index too high. If the PA pressures are, are still quite high and we're worried about gas exchange, you know, we'll, we'll start these patients on uh, inhaled um, isoprostenol uh, for a day or two. I typically, I used to extubate these patients early. I don't anymore um, because these patients often do struggle with their gas exchange in the first uh, few hours. So I'll keep them intubated the night of surgery and we'll aim to extubate them the following morning. Great, those are all excellent points. Okay, so um, how do you manage anticoagulation postoperatively and after discharge? Yes, these patients do require lifelong anticoagulation, regardless of if they have a hypercoagulable condition or not. And uh, that's something that you really have to, um, to stress with these patients. Um, nowadays, we have a whole gamut of various anticoagulation options with both Coumadin and uh, DOAX. Um, I, I, I'll have these patients see vascular medicine specialists prior to surgery as well, and they'll go over their anticoagulation with them. Certainly, if they failed, if, if they failed one anticoagulation strategy before, i.e. if they've been on one anticoagulation strategy and they've had PEs despite that, you know, we want to get them on a different regimen afterwards. Um, but if, um, if their anticoagulation strategy have been successful, I'll keep them on the same. So if they come in with Coumadin, I'll keep them on Coumadin. If they come in with a DOAC, I'll keep them on a DOAC. And typically um, what I do is this. If they come in with a DOAC, I'll um, post-op for the first couple of days. I'll just keep them on sub-Q heparin. And on day three, I'll start them back on a DOAC at the same dose as they were on before. If they came in on Coumadin, um, what I'll do is I'll resume the Coumadin day one um, and day two after surgery, and I'll start them on IV heparin, typically about day two after surgery, day two, sometimes day three. If, they, we, if we know that they have a hypercoagulable state, um, such as antiphospholipid antibodies, uh, et cetera, then um, in those cases, 
I will start, I'll be more aggressive in starting anticoagulation. We'll usually start heparin um, either six to 12 hours after surgery or at the latest the following morning. Great. So in these type of patients, Dr. Tong, how do you judge success? The most important thing which you're trying to accomplish for these patients is you want to see their PVR drop. And, um, and that is absolutely critical. Um, the more their PVR drops, the better their, out, the better their long-term outcome. Um, and um, sometimes we're fooled in looking at just the PA pressures. So what I train our trainees is that you got to think of these patients in terms of PVR, not just PA pressures. And, um, and, and we just do a quick calculation. We'll take their mean PA pressures. And because we're not wedging these patients afterwards, we don't know what the wedge pressure is, but we'll assume that it's 10. And then we'll look at the cardiac output. So the, the calculation for PVR is PA mean minus the wedge divided by cardiac output. So if you have a patient, for example, their PA pressures before surgery was um, mean of 50, their wedge was 10, so that gives you a, a difference of a transpulmonary gradient of 40. And let's say their cardiac output is, um, their cardiac output is, um, is four liters. That gives you a PBR of 10. After surgery, you may have the same P, uh, same P pressures early after surgery um, with the mean of 50 and the wedge is 10, but your cardiac output may be doubled. Um, you know, on that patient, you have immediate drop of PVR by to to half of what it was before, and um, and what we like to see is that the PVR drop below four. It's not always possible. Sometimes you have patients who have very distal disease that you may not get a, a perfect result, um, but that's what you want to see is the drop in their PVR. And typically, we we, we end up under four, and uh, and a lot of times in the, in the two to three range. Um, if you can get these patients PVR to, to those levels, um, what you'll see is that their long-term outcome mirrors that of the general population. So you've essentially cured them of their disease. This is one of the only forms of pulmonary hypertension where you can cure the patients with a surgery. Uh, lung transplant can't do it because lung transplant has a limited life expectancy. So if you have somebody with CTEF and you can get rid of all their clots, and you get their PVR down, you've cured them. And this is why this, uh, this um, operating on these patients is so rewarding. Um, if you can't and you're still left with areas um, where you haven't opened up, um, then sometimes uh, those patients, uh, you may elect to keep them on a pulmonary vasodilator, such as Riosiguat, uh, which is approved for CTEF. And, um, and sometimes we'll send these patients um, post-op a few months down the road for um, balloon angioplasty to, to specific areas that you weren't able to clear if they continue to be symptomatic. Okay, so kind of to wrap everything up, can you speak a little bit on the outcomes of PTE? Yeah, so, so when we look at these, um, these patients, um, the mortality historically for this operation is quite high. It's around 10%. Um, but in high volume centers um, and a centers of excellence, typically now we are seeing mortalities in the one to 3% range for these patients. Even though these patients are very complex, very sick, going into surgery, um, they have bad hearts. We, if you can uh, clear out the disease 
and you do a uh, nice surgical resection, the mortality typically is about one to 3%. Um, down the road, down the road, if you're able to successfully get their PBRs down, like I said, these patients' uh, life expectancy should mirror that of the general population. Um, and that's what you're that's what you're trying to accomplish for these patients. So, uh, so that's what we that's what we want. Um, the most importantly, you want to see whether or not these patients have a good quality of life and whether or not symptomatically um, they're seeing improvements. And I can tell you, this is the group of patients that I probably see the most dramatic improvements in their quality of life afterwards. It's this and the, and the heart failure patients that you're doing transplants on. Um, and often these patients will resume all their activities that they were able to do before. Their six minute walk distance uh, will improve significantly. Uh, we'll routinely do a six minute walk on these patients at, um, at uh, six months after surgery. And then also when you look at their echoes, their right ventricular failure often resolves too. Um, we're pretty aggressive in repairing TR as well at the time of surgery. So you'll see that the TR goes away, their RV improves, and that these are all what you expect to see with a good surgical outcome. Great. Those are all great points. So um, to wrap things up from, from my end or from the case end, uh, the patient did have a very good outcome. The post-op PVR was around two woods, which is decreased from uh, 7.58 uh, initially. And the VQ scan demonstrated improvement in the perfusion of the left lower lobe and the right lower lobe. So Dr. Tong, you know, again, thank you for taking the time to uh, teach us residents. And, uh, and yeah, thank you. Thank you. And just on a parting word, um, I just want to stress how important it is that, um, that if this is something that you're interested in, and this is a type of program that you want to develop, it's absolutely key to work in a team. Um, I've learned so much from our radiology colleagues and our pulmonary colleagues and our vascular medicine colleagues, and we continue to get better in our institutional experience and expert institutional memory um, continues to get stronger as we work. Every case that we do, it, um, it provides input of learning for our next case. And we're able to push the envelope more and more because we have greater, greater comfort. We're not starting from scratch with every case. Every case is building on another case. And there are cases where um, nowadays we also have other options. We have balloon angioplasty options. Um, there are cases where uh, sometimes the disease is not accessible or um, patients are just not medical candidates and we'll send those patients for pulmonary angioplasty, uh, balloon, angio, uh, balloon uh, pulmonary angioplasty. And sometimes if you have a patient where you're, uh, you're somewhat limited in what you were able to do surgically, luckily it doesn't happen that often, but uh, there are cases where you still have residual disease and sometimes our pulmonary um, our radiology uh, colleagues can uh, then go in and do some touch-ups. Um, so that is key, just like every other aspects of medicine and um, in cardiac surgery, it's becoming, it's becoming a work of teams and this is no different. To be successful, you gotta work in a successful team. Great, thank Thanks. you so much.